This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. On June 26th of this year, the United States Supreme Court handed down what some have called one of the most significant church-state rulings in recent history. That case was Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia, Missouri versus the state's Department of Natural Resources. At first glance, the issue seems almost innocuous. Trinity Lutheran runs a child learning center that includes a playground for children ages 2 to 5. That playground had a pea gravel surface, as did many similar facilities. The state of Missouri has a project that grants money to reimburse nonprofit playground owners who wish to replace pea gravel surfaces with rubberized ones made of recycled tires. In 2012, Trinity was invited to participate in the program by the Department of Natural Resources, which runs the program. Trinity applied for the grant and was listed fifth most qualified out of 44 applicants for the 14 available grants. But then, the department told Trinity it was disqualified for the grant solely because the playground's owned by a religious organization. The department claimed that Missouri's state constitution forbade it from granting public funds to religious organizations for any purpose, even one as secular as resurfacing a playground that's open to the general public. Trinity cried foul and contacted the Alliance Defending Freedom, a legal advocacy group dedicated to religious liberty. ADF sued the state in federal court on behalf of Trinity, contending that the grant rejection was unconstitutional. However, Trinity lost the case in district court and later on appeal. At this point, the United States Supreme Court was asked to hear the case, and the high court agreed. On June 26th, it ruled 7-2 in favor of Trinity, stating that Trinity's rejection based solely on religion was, in the words of the ruling, odious to the Constitution. Two justices, however, Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, dissented. In many ways, this may well be a landmark case. I discussed this case and its implications with Alliance Defending Freedom President Michael Ferris on today's World Lutheran News Digest. Mr. Ferris, can you say a little bit about yourself and about the ADF? Well, thank you, Kip. Sure. Um, I am a constitutional lawyer, been in practice for uh, almost 41 years now, and uh, I uh, am fairly new to Alliance Defending Freedom, at least in this capacity. Uh, I joined the organization as president in January. ADF is the largest um, advocacy organization in the world of its kind, where it defends religious freedom, the right to life, and traditional family and marriage views. And so we uh, engage in litigation and advocacy around the world for um, the purpose of really to keep the doors open for the gospel is the ultimate purpose, but religious freedom and freedom of speech are important components of that along the way. Well, I wanted to speak to you today specifically about the Trinity case. It started out really as kind of uh, what would appear, at least on the few, on the surface, to be a bit of a minor issue. What happened is that Trinity ran a, a child learning center for kids ages, I believe, two to five, and they have a playground that's open to the public, and it's... Uh, surface is pea gravel and they applied to a 
actually, they were invited to apply for a program run by the Missouri Department of Natural Resources simply to get uh, a rubberized uh, partial reimbursement for a, a rubberized surface on the playground. Now, this program is open only to nonprofits, of which, of course, Trinity Lutheran is a member. They had enough uh, money, I think, for 14 grants. Trinity Lutheran came in fifth, and then all of a sudden, after being invited to participate, they're told, whoops, sorry, we're not going to do it to you. You're a religious organization. Now, again, this seems to be, on the surface, not to be that big a deal. But on the other hand, people have been saying that this is going to be one of the landmark decisions of the Supreme Court regarding religious freedom. What's the issues here? Where, where is this important? Well, you're, you're right in saying that this is a case of not about a whole lot of money. It's not a multi-million dollar lawsuit or anything like that. And, uh, but most of the most important cases, uh, especially of this kind, don't involve uh, large sums of money or famous people. It's uh, regular people, regular uh, institutions uh, living out normal lives who stand for important principles. And it's the importance of the principles that are uh, the reason that this case, in fact, is one of the landmark decisions of the Supreme Court, especially in the last 20 or 30 years uh, on the issue of religious freedom. And the, the principle is simple. Um, can the government discriminate against religious people in the conduct of regular government services? That's the issue. And if, if we're allowed to treat people of faith or organizations of faith as second-class citizens, uh, the implications are very dramatic and very uh, unhelpful and, um, and, to me, dangerous. Um, on the other hand, if religious organizations are treated just like everybody else, then the principle of religious freedom is uh, encouraged as well as the principle of equality is encouraged. And both of those are at stake in this case and were affirmed by the Supreme Court in the ultimate outcome. Well, one of the things that was that was happening here, and I also want to want to uh, remark that the Supreme Court upheld the appeal on a seven to two decision. It wasn't even close. Uh, but one of the things that they had had mentioned specifically was that denying otherwise available public benefit on the count of the applicant's religious status. That is the problem. The thing is, is that the playground was something for public benefit. It was not just for the church. There is no proselytizing done on the playground. Nothing like that. This was solely something for the good of the community. That's all true. But it, w it wouldn't and shouldn't matter as a constitutional matter if the church only used it for church purposes or if they did occasionally proselytize on the playground. Because like any other nonprofit, they're allowed to participate. And if you have a, um, a political nonprofit, let's say, um, and you know, if they're allowed to participate and advance their viewpoint, um, basically what the Supreme Court is saying is all viewpoints are viewpoints. And people are allowed to advance their viewpoints in small ways or large ways. In fact, the fact that this Lutheran church is open to the public and does allow the community is a faithful gospel witness. Uh, and, in, and in fact, that does have some effect of making people feel good about the Lutheran church uh, and say nice things about them. And that advances the mission uh, of the church to reach out and do, do good to the community, you know, to, uh, it is a Christian a ministry to love our neighbor, and so their act of love does advance the ministry, but it's nonetheless constitutional, even though it is advancing that Christian goal of loving your neighbor as yourself. So um, we, we get too uptight about the religious nature of, of things, and 
uh, we need to realize that free speech is free speech, even if it's religious in character, uh, that equal protection is equal protection, even for religious people. And we need not be afraid of being religious and, and try to make ourselves into being as secular as we have to be. Rather, we can just be ourselves and, and, and let equality take care of itself. Well, I notice in the decision there were there were five in the in the majority, uh, and of those five, actually uh, uh, two of them said essentially that the ruling didn't go far enough. I know uh, Representative, pardon me, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Breyer both seem to imply that although they supported the ruling that came down in favor of the church, the main ruling was very very narrow, just regarding to the specific issue of uh, a loan to of a, a grant to resurface a, a playground, where both uh, Gorsuch and Breyer seem to indicate, no, this goes much farther or should go much farther, because indeed it does go to the very heart of the First Amendment and the Freedom of uh, Religion Exercise Clause. Well, any doubt of the breadth of the decision was cured the next day, because the Supreme Court disposed of four other cases the following day after they decided this one. And all of them were religious freedom cases, all of them involving things different than playgrounds. They were mostly educational choice kinds of cases. Um, and the court uh, granted review in all four cases that had been sitting there basically on hold while this case was being decided and reversed the decisions from the lower courts. And it's technically called vacating them, which means erasing the lower court decision and telling the lower court to try again in light of the Trinity de Lutheran case. And so they wouldn't do that if this was limited to the facts of this particular case. It is not limited to its facts. It's, it, the, it's limited to the principle announced, and the principle is if you have a general program of government services, you can't discriminate against religious people or religious organizations. That's the ruling. And you know, it doesn't apply to... Uh, answer questions such as, well, if you don't open up uh, the program to all nonprofits, if, you, if for example, uh, people worry about um, whether or not um, uh, in the context of K-12 education, uh, you could force a state to adopt a voucher program through this ruling. The answer is no, you can't. Uh, but if the state decides to adopt a voucher program and then said all nonprofits except religious nonprofits or all nonprofits except for this kind of religious group can participate. Either of those two alternatives, where you excluded some people, would be unconstitutional under this ruling. And so if you open up a program and say nonprofits can apply, or these kinds of organizations can apply, or these kind of people can apply, and you keep religious people or religious organizations out, any scenario like that, this ruling is going to apply, and they proved it the following day. Now, one of the things I understand is that uh, the government can be neutral toward religion, but they shouldn't be hostile. And that seems to be the case here with the, uh, with the so-called Blaine Amendments in 37 states that actually make this ruling. Indeed. The, the Blaine Amendment carried too far um, does result in hostility. And this is the second time the state of Missouri has lost a case uh, in the Supreme Court on its version of the Wayne Amendment. Uh, it, it was 40 years ago or so that it lost the case of Widmar versus Vincent when the uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City uh, kept a Christian student group from meeting on campus on the ground that they couldn't allow public facilities to be used for religious groups at all, on any purpose. And the Supreme Court said, no, if you do it in this context involving you know, a, a public college where the, the 
student uh, union building was open to all student groups, but they kept the religious groups out. They said that's a violation of free speech and equal protection. Essentially the same ruling as this case um, in, in Trinity Lutheran. The difference being um, there's actual funds flowing to the church in this particular case. And in the other case, it was a religious group that was just being allowed to use the facility itself. Now, two of the justices dissented in this uh, decision, Sotomayor and uh, Justice Ginsburg, and I want to quote a little bit here from the uh, dissent, and I want to get your reaction to that. And I'm quoting here. This case is about nothing less than the relationship between religious institutions and the civil government, that is, between church and state. The court today profoundly changes that relationship by holding for the first time that the Constitution requires the government to provide public funds directly to a church. What's your reaction to that? Well, um, two reactions. One is uh, the dissent is uh, two judges. Uh, Justice Kagan, who is uh, normally a part of the more liberal wing of the court, and Justice Breyer, also normally a part of the liberal wing of the court, uh, joined the majority uh, in the outcome. Uh, Justice Kagan actually joined the, the full majority opinion. And so you can see how out of mainstream uh, these two judges are. Secondly, they see it very broadly. And even though they describe the nature of the broad uh, decision, I believe, incorrectly, they are correct in, in expressing that it is an important broad decision. Uh, it's not the first time um, that the Supreme Court has uh, allowed uh, this. I personally argued a case in the Supreme Court in the 1980s, early 1980s, where uh, the Supreme Court, by a nine-to-nothing vote, and it's called uh, Winters versus uh, Washington Department Services for the Blind, granted direct funds to Inland Empire School of the Bible, which is, for these purposes, a church-related school, and they gave tuition dollars directly to that school. And, and so uh, the fact that, you know, so they're saying it's the first time it's flowed to a religious institution, they're just wrong. And, and uh, there have been other cases where it's happened, and it depends on the totality of circumstances. If the government was funding a church to do actual church services, like was done in the, at the time of the founding of the colony of Virginia, for example, that would be unconstitutional. But to give a student, the Witters case that I argued, um, his, his tuition assistance because he was going blind and he wanted to study to get a vocation, and the vocation he chose was to be a pastor, that kind of neutral government program was not funding church for the sake of the church. It was looking at the program as a whole. That's the secret. You've got to look at the program as a whole and see what they're funding. If they're funding churches as churches, that's a constitutional problem. But if they're funding safe playgrounds, or they're funding tuition for blind students, or if they're funding crosswalks for safety for public buildings, or if they're funding, you know, putting up terror blocking uh, cones in front of buildings that have been threatened by terrorists, if, if a religious building is, you know, receives, uh, or a religious institution receives aid in any of those kinds of scenarios, they're not getting the money because they're a religious organization. They're getting the money because they're a part of a general broad group, and that group is being funded. 
again, I think uh, Justice Breyer actually spelled that out when he said that the uh, uh, the, court, the court stated in the Everson case that cutting off church schools from such general government services as ordinary police and fire protection is not the purpose of the First Am- Amendment. And he said that to cut off Trinity Lutheran from participation in a general program designed to secure and improve health and safety of children, I see no significant difference. And I find that very interesting, again, because Breyer is on the liberal wing of the court. You're exactly correct. And, and the analogy is is correct as well. And so, um, you know, the, the general rule is look at the program as a whole, see what the program as a whole is. What, what was being funded in colonial Virginia is we were actually, we, you know, since I live in Virginia, we were, we as Virginians were actually funding the Anglican Church here in Virginia. That's not what's going on in, in Missouri with the Trinity Lutheran case. You're funding through tire fees, safe playgrounds. It's a wholly different operation. I think one of the big uh, problems facing us here is misinformation. I've been reading a lot of letters to the editor and editorials in our local newspaper here, the Post-Dispatch, and so much of it talks about uh, breaching the so-called wall between state and church, and others simply do not get the point that this particular program was open only to nonprofits. They were saying, well, the answer is simple. Just pay your taxes, then you can open up, be open to these, uh, these, or, these, pro- these uh, programs. But this was specifically for nonprofits. And again, the information simply was not getting out. I, I wish I knew how to, how to, con, how to uh, counteract that. Do you have any ideas? Um, by the St. Louis patch, Post-Dispatch. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll write a check. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we could pool our money and we could, maybe we could buy two or three copies. Um, but uh, uh, at least that's all I could contribute probably today. But um, the... Um, some of the media is just willfully ignorant. Um, they don't want to um, tell people the whole story because the whole story doesn't fit their worldview. Um, and, and of course, there are a number of people uh, in this country that are willfully ignorant of the Constitution. Uh, I remember when I was in college, this has been a long-standing problem. When I was in college, um, there was a social science experiment. People went to a shopping mall and... Uh, had copies of the Bill of Rights, and, but they just pre- pretend, presented it as a protest petition and asked people if they'd want to sign it. And a uh, majority of the people would not sign the Bill of Rights uh, because they didn't, you know, didn't like what it said. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, we have um, a great deal of ignorance about the Constitution. Unfortunately, uh, when community leaders that should know better, like editorial boards of major newspapers, and even worse, when judges and governors and state legislators and members of Congress don't understand the correct constitutional history, um, we have a real problem. But uh, and, and frankly, um, uh, the Christian community, the, the conservative community, we admire the Constitution, but we don't know it much better than the rest. And we have a, our own duty to um, become literate about the Constitution and, and to undertake some actual study uh, of it. So I. I would admonish all of us to see if we can move in that direction, become more of students of the Constitution, because our freedom is tied up in its preservation and um, and it's being followed by our various institutions of government. And if the citizens don't know what it says, we don't know how to hold our government feet to the fire when they stray. And there are some uh, there are some avenues. I mean, even here in the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, there was an op-ed piece by a member of the uh, ADF 
trying to explain the issues here. And, you know, people do have the option of doing that. Many newspapers and uh, radio stations and TV stations will welcome some kind of a debate. Uh, letters to the editor, uh, write an op-ed piece, something along those lines. You can. You, there are things people can do to try to get the messages out. Comment on their web pages. They, they, a lot of them will have that. They'll set up the editorial or, or even the letters to the editor and invite people to comment on it. These are things that can be done. Uh, indeed. And, uh, you know, as long as we're on this uh, uh, vein, I, I, I think it's really important for people to be telling their, their friends and neighbors um, what they believe in these things and, and identify themselves as Christians. Because um, the reason in many respects and in other cases that we're litigating for Mississippi Freedom right now, uh, there are real problems with Christian liberty being, being truncated. And it's, and it's in large part because uh, people don't uh, think of their neighbors when they think of, well, these Christians, these, these you know, these born-again Christians, these Bible-believing type, these conservative Lutherans and so on. And when we identify ourselves publicly to our neighbors, we help personify the whole issue, and it becomes, well, that's Bill and Sue or, you know, Shane and... Mary or whatever. Uh, we need to personify these issues to our neighbors. I picked a jury once in a legal dispute between a homosexual father and a um, born-again Christian mom. Every juror knew a homosexual. Only one juror said that they knew a born-again Christian. And I, I, I concluded they all probably did know born-again Christians. They just didn't know that they did because we were more silent about who we were than the other community was. And so we need to be speaking up uh, and identifying ourselves for lots of reasons. Our rights depend upon our uh, being willing to stand up and, and speak our mind in the name of our faith. And I think you've really hit hit on a point here. So many Christians and even Lutherans are afraid to, or I'm not sure if it's afraid is the right word, but are reluctant to state publicly their faith or to identify themselves as being Christian. And I don't understand why that is. Well, it, it, you know, ultimately it comes down to pride. Uh, we don't want to be embarrassed. Um, and, and so we think that we'll be embarrassed in some respect if we tell people that. And so um, we just have to get over that and, and realize that uh, uh, the Bible is pretty clear about it, that, that we need to... Um, you know, Jesus says if, if, we aren't, if we're ashamed of him before men, that he'll be ashamed of us before uh, his Heavenly Father. And that's a pretty strong admonition. Um, we need to speak up. I hadn't thought of it in that term, so you're absolutely right. And he did say that, you know, if we're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of us. I think, you know, for example, the neighborhood where I live, uh, you know, I, I parked my car out front. I've got my KFUO sticker on it and all the things about the Lutheran Church. And my neighbor across the street has a Black Lives Matter sign. And my neighbor on the other side is a uh, Orthodox Jew and, and follows the garb and everything. And it's, it, to me, that's a very interesting thing where these people, including us, are willing to, to speak up to who we are. We may not agree with the other person, but they are speaking out. They're identifying themselves. And we should identify yeah. ourselves as well. That's exactly right. There's, you know... Um they are um, exercising their rights as American and are being faithful to what they believe, and that's all fine. We just need to be there as well. And, and you know, the, the, these days people are um, 
not willing to be different. And, and there are some elements of our society that want to punish people who are willing to be different. And, and so um, the, the form of difference right now that is the most um, uh, acceptable to, to uh, persecute in polite elite circles, at least, is our conservative Christians. And, uh, uh, and so the, um, the willingness to speak up on that is particularly vulnerable in, in many, many respects. But we've got to do it. Our, you know, it's our spiritual duty. It's our political and legal necessity. I've been uh, somewhat pessimistic in the past about the uh, future of uh, religious freedom in this country, but re- lately there's been a few things that have changed me that, that's given me some hope. For example, the 7-2 decision, the fact that it wasn't close, that it was indeed a 7-2, that tells me that maybe, just maybe, there's some light on the horizon. Indeed. And there we... was a, a decision, a second decision that same day, as the Trinity case, of another case that Alliance Defending Freedom is arguing. In, in that decision, they decided to, to accept the case. So it will be argued in the fall. And that's the case of the Christian Baker in Denver who didn't want to um, make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. He offered to sell them anything in the in the shop that was already made, uh, and he, you know, sell them an undecorated cake, but he was unwilling to use his artistic ability to put a blessing effectively on a same-sex wedding on a cake. And, and so, um, that the Supreme Court has taken that case and that's extremely volatile, extremely contentious and absolutely essential to the preservation of a different branch of our freedom, uh, and that will be decided this fall. And so, you know, I just, you know, I would ask your uh, listeners to be sure to pray for that case. It's extremely important. It's called the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And there's several other uh, cases very similar to that. There's uh, uh, Bernal Stetsman in Washington State who's had her yeah. uh, problems with the, uh, with the florist shop. There are uh, photographers. Right. Yeah, that's another one of our cases. In fact, I'm proofreading, t- uh, as we record this, uh, her cert petition to the Supreme Court. Um, and so, but given the fact that they've already taken the cake shop case, it's first in line. and It's going to be the one that's going to set the major precedent at the Supreme Court. Well, we're certainly going to have an interesting year ahead of us. Mr. Ferris, Mr. Ferris, I want to thank you so much for being on the program. You shed a lot of light on this. I want to thank you personally, and I also want to thank your organization for the wonderful work you've done in protecting our rights. Well, thank you very much, and I encourage your people to check out our website and to pray for us as they think of it. Thank you. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.